0: If you would turn to the book of Acts, chapter six. Acts chapter six, we will be looking at the whole chapter. But it's a short one. Acts chapter six, verses one through fifteen. This is the word of the Lord. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon... Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit who is always with us. God, as we look at these verses, I pray that You would move me out of the way that Your Spirit would open our eyes to understand not just those times that the church has failed, but how You used this failure to bring about the care and the preaching of the Word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We have all either heard or said some of the following when it comes to not just this church, but the church universal or different churches we may have attended. For example, we don't take care of, and then fill in the blank, we don't take, do a good, t- do, do good job taking care of singles. Or we don't do a good job of taking people who are married without kids. This church tends to focus on, 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 just, on, on young parents. Or we don't take, do a good job of caring for our seniors. We don't do enough visitation. or We don't do a good job taking care of homeschool kids. Fill in the blank, we've often either heard or felt, Some of these critiques, and I mean critiques in a good way. Or on the flip side, we uh, have different people who have different opinions. We should really fill in the blank. We should really have more events. We really don't have enough events. That's what some people say. Other people say, actually, I think we have too many events. We really need to scale back, or we need to go back to the way the order of worship was 10 years ago, or we need to improve and progress our order of worship, or we need to make sure the order of worship stays just the way it is. Now, there's times that you just can't make... Everyone happy. And I'm saying this about myself. This is not me wagging the finger. But on the flip side, there are times that the church is really failing in certain areas and it needs to change. There are times that those critiques really cut to the heart of either a conflict or an issue or a gap, something that needs to be done. But here's the problem sometimes the real needs of the church, the very core of what, for example, Clover ARP Church needs falls between the cracks because there's this massive load of different uh, ideas that come about. The urgent replaces the important. Let me say that again. The urgent, that what needs to be done right now, replaces the important, which should be long-lasting. And there's a tension there. There's a tension felt uh, by a pastor. There's a tension felt by the leadership of the church. There's a tension felt by those involved. There's a tension with those involved just sitting sitting in a pew we all feel this things need to change but what we can't do everything we can't change everything and there but some things that we are doing very well you see here's what we're looking at today if we are filled by the spirit we should be means or conduits for the teaching of the word and the service of the church now that sounds simple but how does that happen? You see, Clover, in Clover ARP Church, we are succeeding. There are some things we are doing very well. There are other things that we are failing, and I say we, pointing at myself as well. Here's my question to you. Here's my question to me. How do we prioritize the most important parts of ministry? We cannot do it all. We cannot succeed in everything. We cannot be experts at every part of ministry. What is that area of ministry that God has given to Clover ARP Church? And how do you, how do I, become conduits for either a growth in an area of a ministry, or sometimes it's just tweaking to make it more effective. That's what we're looking at today. The context is, this new church is growing in the book of Acts, and it's experienced its first case of church discipline, where the Holy Spirit took care of it, and its first case of persecution. Persecution. And now we see some internal difficulties, some internal strife, and some different questions that are happening, and very poignant critiques. And we see how the early church reacts to it. If you look at your Bibles, go ahead and keep them open. If you look at verses 1 through 6, first we see the church's failure to care. We see a problem. You see the Grecian Jews are being overlooked. There's a group of of widows, they're Greek, and there's no one caring for them. This numerical growth, the church was growing, There's more and more people coming, but there was management problems. Those of you who have managerial skills, that God is giving you those talents, this church needed you. Now there's a Jewish practice of caring for the widows, it was built into the marriage contract, there's a Jewish system of distributing food and probably clothing and money to to these widows. But there was a complaining. If you look at the word, there's a murmuring. And it's not because of ethnic malice. It's not that the Greeks were against the Jews. Rather, it was because there wasn't administrative organization. And so the leadership we see works quickly to solve this division. Now, here's what's important to realize. The plight of the widows, the, the widows in the church was prominent, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. You see, a community's compassion, it could be measured by its care of the poor, the orphans and the widows. If you cared for them, you were a compassionate community. If you didn't, you were not. And so this is a very important aspect. This was a very important demographic in the community, in the society. But we also see a priority. If you look at verse 2, there was a priority for the apostles, the teaching and the service of the church. You see, this complaint is legitimate. Someone needs to care for these widows. And even these apostles say it is appropriate or it, has, it, it is right But they also say it is not right for them to abandon the teaching of the church to wait on tables is the way they put it. They prioritize the teaching and they delegate the other responsibility. Now, does that mean that the apostles were too good and that they couldn't care for the widows because what they were doing was more important? Absolutely not. But that word right has the nuance that they had been called. The apostles were called to teach. And if they didn't teach before God, they were ignoring their responsibility. So they had to find another way for this to be fulfilled. This is something that I've felt very powerfully since I've been back. You, people in this church, have done a great job. There are so many people here that work overtime so that I can be free to visit, I can prepare my teaching. And this is me saying thank you. You see this 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 problem, this issue that was happening here, I'm saying thank you. There's so many people who work behind the scenes so that other people can minister. And those people would not want me to say who their names are, but you y'all have done a great job with this, this administrative part, caring for these smaller details. And yet there's ways that we can improve. If you look at verses three through four, it, it, you see there a solution. What do they do? They ask for men who are filled with the Spirit and who are filled with wisdom, and they are chosen to be the first deacons. And through verses three through four, this idea of being full of the Spirit it essentially means that they have their lives directed by God's Spirit. They were sensitive to God's direction. They were able to make good judgments. They had a good reputation. And the the word, it says that that they were testified about there in verses 3-4. through The actual word there is martyr. The word martyr means to testify. And it meant somebody had testified about their good character, about how they were filled with wisdom, about how they were filled with the Spirit. And then it creates a contrast between their ministry and that of the apostles. The apostles had a two-pronged ministry. And the word ministry in Greek is actually diakonia. So deacon actually just means one who ministers. But the apostles, their goal, they were to devote themselves, what what are the two things there? To prayer and the ministry of the word. And you see a separation of two uh, offices in the church. The office of deacon, of serving, and the office of elder, of teaching and of prayer. What's amazing is, I didn't plan this to, to coincide, just this past week, you should have gotten at your home, those of you who are members, a list, a list of people who are to be Uh, uh, elected as elders and deacons. I would encourage you, read that letter. There are some Bible verses there. The qualifications of who will be our leaders of tomorrow is absolutely essential. Too many times when we approach this list, sometimes we think, do they come from a good family? Or, or, Or even almost like choosing a homecoming king. That is not at all what we are doing. We are choosing the men who will guide our church. Are these men filled with the Spirit? Are they filled with wisdom? Have you seen spiritual growth in them? Think through that list carefully. The future of our church depends on it. So as we look at these men here, we see the office of deacon and the office of elder coming forth. And then in verses 5 through 6, we see them being ordained, being separated, being chosen for the ministry of the church. And, And it gives us a list. Now remember, just a few verses ago, there was division. There were people who weren't being cared for. All of a sudden we see unity once again despite their differences. Stephen is the first name mentioned here, and he's described as a man full of the spay, full of faith and full of the Spirit, which is the same few words that were used to describe Barnabas before, and he'll come up again in 11.24. A man full of the faith and full of the Spirit. Wouldn't you like to be described that way at your funeral? I know I would. It describes Philip next, and it's likely that this Philip is actually an apostle. We see an apostle stepping forth into the office of a deacon, which is actually something that this church did. There are several elders who noticed that we needed to help train and care for our deacons, and so they became deacons so that they could care for that office. We likely see that happening here with Philip. And as you look through the rest of the names, they're actually Greek, though the names are common in Judea. So what's likely is this group of people were made up of both Jews and Greeks, and they united to help care for the Jewish and the Greek widows. And they were commissioned by the apostles with prayer and the laying of hands, a recognition of God's call. God had called these men for this task. And so the church retains its unity despite despite ethnic and cultural differences. We see that here. What I want you to notice, the church was not perfect. They had had a problem. There was a problem here. They were not caring the way they should. But they reacted to their need for change. They prioritized the important. Then if you look at verse 7, what is the reaction? What happens next? You see church growth. The word was growing or it continued to increase. This active verb, is, is, is that's the first thing that happens. It's a personification. It's almost like the word was a person and it was growing and going forth. And it's directing its own growth like the seed or the fruit of a harvest. Think about Luke 8-11 and the, the, uh, the parable of the sower. The word was growing. The other thing that we see happening here in verse 7 is the disciples were being multiplied. Now, this is actually a passive verb. Now, why do I... is a passive verb. Why do I call this to your attention? In an active verb, you are doing the action. But here where it says they were being multiplied, it's not that the church was working hard. It was something external was making them grow. And from what we've seen through the book of Acts, we know exactly what that is. It was the spirit. Many were coming to faith because the Spirit was multiplying them. They were being multiplied. Not only were they being multiplied, look, look at the third thing that it says. Even a crowd of priests was being obedient, which is an absolute miracle. If you think about what was happening in chapter 5, what was happening in chapter 5? They were being persecuted by the religious leaders. You saw the Sanhedrin, you saw the Pharisees, you saw the Sadducees persecuting them, flogging them, thinking about even killing them. And yet, by chapter 6, verse 7, you have some of these religious leaders converting to the faith. God used the unity, God used even the critique in the church to bring the church growth. This is a stark contrast to last week. And they're being converted. Now, this is the first of six summaries that shows what success does to a church. When a church grows, there's two things that happen. One, there's a popularity and there's a growth in new numbers but there's also a persecution, be it internal or external. We will see this every time there's a summary statement like this. Anytime the church succeeds, anytime it grows, it looks great. The community gets excited, but get ready. There will be persecution, whether from inside or from outside. And it's no different today. The success and the growth of the church will come with those that enter the church, but there's also those who will react against it. Interestingly, Both groups see areas of need in this church. Here's the difference. One group remains critical. Critiques are good, but one group remains critical. The other humbly joins in to make the change. They see a gap and they try to step in. What can I do? And so when we look at verses 8 through 15, there's an explosion of what? (gasps) Church persecution. You are expecting growth. We are hoping for growth, but instead we see persecution. Yet, amazingly, what we're going to see through the book of Acts, when things get hard, that's when the church seems to grow the most. God uses difficulty, God uses trial to grow His church. And I know I've seen that in my life. Perhaps you've seen that in your life as well. Look at verse 8. First, we see the ministry of Stephen. He was a man who was serving with the deacons, they were helping the widows including the, the Greek widows, and they were serving. What's amazing here, too, my notes aren't as... A, the, the my, I was going in one direction, my notes were going in another. When you look at the, the ministry of Stephen, here also it separates, we talked about the difference, the office of deacon and the office of elder. Now, the deacon, according to our, our Westminster standards, according to our, our form of government, is a man who is to be of sympathy and service. After the example of Christ, someone faithful and diligent, of good sympathetic nature, character, honest repute, exemplary life, brotherly love, sound judgment. They are to have a mercy ministry both inside and outside the congregation. They are to encourage the church in good stewardship and tithing. And they are to care for the church property. That's the job description summarized of what a deacon is called to do. According to our form of government, the elder is a person who is a man of wisdom, of discretion, sound faith, godly life, guarding and promoting their spiritual w- the welfare of the church, shepherding, counseling, teaching, admonishing, encouraging parents to baptize their children, receiving new members, supervising the de- deacons, overseeing the worship, organizing congregational meetings. There are some things that are happening here. But what's amazing is we see Stephen, though chosen as a deacon, is also teaching is also preaching. You see, these are the different jobs, both of the deacons and the elders, but before we stop and say, start saying, man, here's the things they aren't doing, we see Stephen doing all the others. Christian. These aren't just the jobs of the deacons. These aren't just the jobs of the elders. Many of these, the care, the honest repute, the exemplary life, the caring for one another, the visitation, that's not the job of an elder. That's not the job of a deacon. That's not the job of a Christian. That's all of our responsibilities. If that's an area that's failing in our church... It's because I'm failing. It's because we all are. And we see that with Stephen here. The work that he puts forth. If you look at verse 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And he, later we're going to see he is teaching as well. He's fulfilling both the job of a deacon and the job of the elder. What's amazing also is we see these same qualifications in First Timothy where it describes what it means to be an overseer and what it means to be a deacon. I encourage you to read those. But the qualifications are someone above reproach, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. This calling, yes, it should be for our elders. Yes, it should be for our deacons. It's a high bar, but it's for a Christian. You see, when we choose these people to become either deacons or elders, they should already be living this life. They should already be serving in this way. And the ordination is just putting God's blessing upon it. Though establishing the office of deacon, notice that Stephen is not just serving at the tables, he's also effective in his preaching, he's effective in his healing, and it parallels the work of the apostles. This is, these are tasks for us all. And what's amazing here, and I would encourage this, I was actually given advice when I had just a regular job, but my boss came up to me and he said, don't work the job that you have, work the job that you want. When we think about the qualifications of elders, the qualifications of deacons, don't look for the people who might be good at it. Look for the people serving in those areas already. And what does it say here about Stephen? He was full of the Spirit. And so, as a natural result, because he's full of the Spirit, he's sharing his faith with boldness. But, notice, his ministry does not go unopposed. Look at verse 9 and 10. There's opposition to Stephen's ministry. Now, these, these men are likely slaves who had been freed. It talks about Cyrene, Cyrenians. These are people from Libya, so North Africa. Alexandrians, this is from Egypt. Cilicia, this is Asia Minor, and interesting. The capital of Cilicia is Tarsus, and later we're going to talk about a Saul who was from Tarsus. We'll get there. And Asia, this is where these men are from. And they're disputing, which is the same word to describe how Jesus was challenged in the Gospels. You see, Stephen is not opposed because of he's a Hellenistic Jew or because of anything else like that. He's opposed because of his Christianity. He's a man full of faith, preaching the Gospel. He's doing the right thing. And what's amazing about these Hellenists, they're strongly pro-Jewish. And they've left their lanes of birth to come to Israel to follow the law and to be in the locale, the temple. So these people who were opposing Stephen were people who thought they were obeying God. They had moved from countries far away to Jerusalem to serve God. So they thought they were doing the absolute right thing. And so we see them opposing God's servant. What did they miss? Jesus Christ. They had missed that Jesus Christ had come to die for their sins. As we talked last week, He didn't come as a political Savior. He came as a spiritual Savior to save us from our sins. They totally missed that. And what we see here in verse 11 to 14, they instigate. They instigate opposition against Him. Now this could be direct or it could be by hint or suggestion. But the idea, the charges against Stephen are that he spoke blasphemy both against Moses and against God. Now, speaking against Moses, according to the book of Exodus and Leviticus, was a capital crime, which means if you did it, you were supposed to die. And this might be also the same concept that got Jesus killed, in Luke chapter 21 and John chapter 2. Essentially, what was happening is they were accusing him of blasphemy, and this carried with it, the punishment was death. And so, what we see here is this is the first time that people rise up against Christians. Before we saw, it was leadership. It was, it was the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. Here, we see just regular people who are rising up against Christians. And, and there's a mixture of both popular justice justice, and formal examination. Yes, they were going before a court, but this was people bringing their complaints. This cannot be the case. And Luke underscores, he repeats this over and over in this passage, that it was unjust. These were false witnesses. And what's amazing is they describe Stephen, the same way they described Christ, they didn't even say his name. They say, this man. And if you remember from last week, in the same way they talked about Jesus, they wouldn't even refer to his name when they were accusing him. It was just, this man, look at what he has done. What's amazing, though, is the disciples respected the law. They attended the temple. They were concerned for how the law was observed. In in chapter 25, verses 7 through 8, you're going to see Paul reject the idea that he's acted against the temple. So, throughout the Scriptures, they are trying to show, no, the law is important to us. The temple is important to us. But, what is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the temple? The purpose of each of these is to point us to Jesus Christ. If you read the book of Hebrews, the purpose of the temple where God's presence dwelt was to remind the people, you cannot enter God's temple. You are imperfect. You are sinful. And yet, Christ came, and because of Christ, we are able to enter the throne of grace boldly. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or think about, what is the purpose of the law? Why is there so many rules in the Old Testament? You know, Calvin described a threefold use of the law. One of the things the law does is it serves as a mirror. It shows you your sin. Have you ever read the rules of the Old Testament and realized, man, I've messed up bad? There's one part where it says, if you sin unintentionally, you didn't even mean to sin, you're still supposed to give a sacrifice. So much of what we do is wrong. And the purpose of the law is we're supposed to look at it and we're supposed to realize, I've messed up. But the law also restrains evil. If you think about the way our world works, instead of just having chaos and anarchy, the purpose of the law is to restrain evil. But it also has concern for how the law is observed. You see, you as a Christian, once you become a follower of Christ, you realize this law is supposed to guide my life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is a command. That is a law. If you live by it, your life will be so much better. Because you are in Christ. Do not steal. That's a good rule to live by. You can go through the law. It's supposed to not just show us our sin, but it's to show us how we are to live. And as he describes this, you see Stephen here speaking. They've accused him of speaking against the temple. They've accused him of speaking against the law. And what is his reaction? Do you see him frantically saying, no, no, I didn't say that. Oh, come on. You don't see him doing that at all. What do you see in verse 15? His countenance, his face. What does it look like? They saw his face was like the face of an angel. There's another aspect to where people really think that what this is referring to is brightness. In the Old Testament, whenever Moses spent time with God, he came off of the mountain and people looked at him. They couldn't even look at his face. He had to put on a veil. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about how we are to reflect the sun. And so when people look at us, they are to see Christ's reflection. When, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, it talks about, it talks similarly about that. When you spend time with God, you are different. And this is showing his reaction isn't to scramble, it's not to be afraid, it's not to justify himself. He's getting ready to preach one of the most famous sermons in the Bible. In fact, this is the longest monologue in the entire Scriptures. He gets more time dedicated to this sermon than anyone else does. And he's about to tell them the truths. Of scripture, And so this, the appearance of his face, sets it up for the next chapter. Despite the injustice of his opposition, he is not phased or distracted. Rather, he reflects those who have been in the presence of God. What did it say about him before? He was full of the Spirit. That's what people saw. What I want you to notice is that the Spirit uses the failures of the church to fix the problems and to provide growth. We also see that the growth itself comes from the Spirit. But I also want you to notice that success and the growth of the church brings, one, numerical growth growth, and spiritual maturity, but it also brings persecution and opposition. So our answer is, are you different when you are full of the Spirit? Whether you are persecuted or not, our reaction to difficulty or no difficulty, to joy and success, should be absolutely the same. God is guiding. A trust in God. When you see the failure in a church, I'd encourage you, let's be a part of those who seek to humbly repair it. Let our attitude be the same as Christ Jesus. Isn't that what it says in Philippians? There's, we used to talk in seminary. There was a man who was a chaplain. He was actually a pastor near a military base. And he said, you know, one of the things I love about church is on the base, there's a hierarchy. But when they're off base and we're having a church function, you'll see a colonel washing dishes next to a private. You see, when we're sitting here, the service of the church, it doesn't matter in rank. Whether you're a, a CEO or, you know, my dad was a, a janitor for school bathrooms. It doesn't matter in the church. We have people who are very prominent in their businesses who go help us do Good News Club and who serve with these kids and have kids scream at them and jump on them and land on their toes. And When it comes to the ministry of the church, we serve humbly. I would encourage us to prioritize what is important. You see Philip, an apostle who is among those serving At the tables, if you're already involved in a ministry, continue to stay involved in that ministry. Don't try to put too much on your plate, but continue to try to tweak and improve it. Delegate when you need to. Realize that you cannot do it all. We saw the apostles delegating. We should follow that same example. We cannot do it all. But also, like Stephen, all Christians should be part of the preaching of the gospel. That's not just the job of the pastor. That's the job of the Christian. Use every situation at the grocery store, at your job, while you're driving, be careful though, keep your eyes on the road, for the teaching of the word and the service of the church. Use every opportunity. What we find amazing is that's exactly what Stephen was doing. At every turn, every chance he got, he was preaching the word of God. I encourage us to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, but we thank You for the service and the ministry of the church throughout generations. God, even as we think about uh, the elders and the deacons of the future, but also the ministry of, every, of all of us, God, I pray that whenever there is failure in the church, that we would examine it carefully and see why You burdened our hearts and that we would seek to make a change, but to do it humbly, knowing that You care for us. God, I also pray that when that opposition comes, that we would remain faithful. God, I pray that whether it's good times or bad, we would be overjoyed, and that being full of the Spirit would characterize our lives. That when people from the outside look towards us, that they would see a person who spends time with Jesus in prayer, in Your Word, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you would open your red Trinity hymnal, to number 175. We're going to sing verses 1 and 2 of A Wonderful Savior is Jesus My Lord. Please stand and let's sing together.
1: My soul in the cleft of the rock I find He hideth my life in the depths of the sea, and covers me there with his hand, and covers me there. wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. He taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up, and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. That shadows a dry thirsty land He hideth my love in the depths of his love and covers me me
0: You may be seated. In discussing sharing the Gospel, telling others about Jesus Christ, one way to do this is to proclaim Christ's death until His return by celebrating the Lord's Supper. On the night of his, before His death, Jesus celebrated Passover with His disciples. And it was a commemorating feast that remembered God's redemption from Egypt. And it looked forward to the Messiah that would come to free His people. In Matthew chapter 26, we see it say, On on that night, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And He gave it to His disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is My body. Then He took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit from the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in My Father's kingdom. Then when they had sung a hymn, they went out, the Mount of Olives. We see this same structure that they used then, modeled by the apostles in Acts chapter 2. It's spelled out by 1 Corinthians 11. We see it throughout the historical record and we still use it today. You see the simplicity of this meal. It's bread and it's wine, in this case juice. But it's also infinitely complex. Somehow through this supper we are called to be spiritually nourished. We have our union with Christ confirmed and we testify to our union with Christ through our communion with each other. You see, we're not saved by this sacrament or by baptism or by any other human act. Rather, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, which is evidenced by a life dedicated to Him. Our faith, this bread, this wine, they are so simple. And yet, they are beyond our comprehension and we celebrate this salvation through this meal we remember and we feast you see not everyone can take communion children if you are a young child we ask that you abstain 1st corinthians 11 talks about how we are called to examine our hearts and we encourage our children to wait until the age when they're able to publicly profess the faith their faith when they've joined the church when they're really able to examine their hearts We also ask non-believers, if you've never asked Jesus into your heart to abstain, don't take the elements, let them pass you by. And if you feel a tug, if you feel a desire, take this time to dedicate your life to Jesus Christ, that from now on, you would be different. For everyone else, we don't ask that you be good. We don't ask that you be perfect. Rather, we ask simply that you have sought the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If you have done that in the past, I would encourage you right now to bow your heads. And let's take a time to corporately confess our sins to God. Please bow your heads and do so now. Father, we are sinful, broken people. When I think of just my nature, it's sinful enough. Never mind the sins that I've committed in the past day even the past hour forgive us we pray but father we also thank you for the assurance that we have in jesus christ thank you for the assurance that we have that you forgive our sins you've promised that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and so father we thank you for the gift of your son. in whose name we pray amen